Hello, and welcome to the Green Book Commentaries. I'm Dr. Arthur Plessa, episode 23. BJ was like a father to me. After spending five days in Florida, vacationing with my family, practically cooking in my own sweat, as my wife and I pushed five kids in strollers around Disney World, it's great to be back in my air-conditioned clinic. For those just joining us, we have concluded a lengthy read of some incredible medical research pertaining to human energy and how interference to its transmission along the nervous system is the underlying cause of dystrophy or dis-ease. For our avid listener, we can only hope that you've gained more insight into the nervous system its role in the genesis and termination of disease, and how our role as a chiropractor is the only one that can properly locate the cause of disease and specifically adjust it. Now, I promised everyone a special episode if we could just make it through all that medical research together. And, well, we did. In this episode... We're going to read from an interview given by one of chiropractic's great minds, one who helped further develop the profession and step up its efficiency so more chiropractors could help get more sick people well. We present Dr. J. Clay Thompson. Dr. J. Clay Thompson, BJ was like a father to me. Interviewed by Paul E. Gillet. The following interview was conducted with J. Clay Thompson, D.C., Ph.C., a noted inventor of chiropractic tables, chiropractic researcher, and developer of the terminal point adjusting technique. Dr. Thompson. B.J. was fascinated with inventions. While he was not very mechanical himself, he took great pride in those who did something. I remember very well, BJ called me into his office one day at the BJ clinic, and he said, Clay, you seem to be a pretty good inventor. You've invented the head clamp that's in the x-ray department and the visograph to help out with the neurocolometer. He said, we have a problem here in the BJ clinic. We have the electroencephalo-neuromintempograph that runs a graph. We put those electrodes on different parts of the spine and make the adjustment, and then we recheck them. And he said, all we get on the charts are the peaks and the valleys. We have no way of reading the whole picture. Will you see if you can work out some kind of machine that will do that? Now, this was about six weeks before Lyceum which was the usual thing for BJ, because he had an idea. Because when he had an idea, he wanted it done yesterday. And so I said, well, I'll see what I can do. So I worked pretty hard on this, all in my spare time. Eventually, I had it all worked out to just one little snag that I didn't know how to solve. In the meantime, BJ came in and said, Clay, 
how are you doing on the graph? And I showed it to him and he said, oh, that's wonderful. But I said, I haven't got it completed. There's one snag I have got to solve. Oh, he said, that doesn't make any difference, Clay. It's just fine as it is. And as I said, look, Chief, I called him Chief. If you want this done right, okay. If you don't, just forget the whole thing. Just scrap the whole idea. He threw his hand up and said, wait a minute. Oh, no, 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 Clay. Okay, okay. And from then on, any time that something came up in the field of invention, BJ said, call Clay in. So that's how I gained BJ's favor in the first place. Now, BJ was really something in the BJ clinic where he proved the theory of chiropractic. I can remember it so well. Some of the cases that came in, he had a grounded and shielded booth to operate the neurocalligraphs, which read the spine. They placed terminals of the pickup down about the first segment of the sacrum, and then they brought it up from 17 to 19 seconds, up under the occiput. Then we would have to roll the instrument under that occiput, and sometimes the patient's hair got in the way. Well, BJ didn't pay any attention to what anybody thought about their hair. He just took a pair of clippers, cut, cut the hair off the back of their necks, and let it go out that. After they were taken out of the neurocalligraph room, the x-rays were read. Next, he placed the patient on the side posture table or the knee chest posture bench because up until my terminal point table that's all we had in the clinic then he would carefully study the x-rays and make his adjustment then after he made the adjustment he would have the patient taken to a restroom where he lay down for an hour and then went back to be checked again this was the routine then in some almost impossible cases, those that everybody else had failed on, BJ pulled them out of it. Now, BJ believed that just the adjustment alone, unless the patient helped himself a little, wouldn't do it. He believed that you had to be on your own, and that you had to exercise, eat properly, and follow good health practices besides getting the adjustment. The adjustment would take out the interference, and then it was up to you to do the job. But he said, you know, Clay, I'm terribly discouraged with this exercise room. He had almost every kind of machine for exercising. After he would adjust his patients, and they would begin to get their strength back, he would encourage them to exercise. Well, within the field, some jealous people got to calling him a mixer because he was using this. So he had to cut it out altogether because of the stigma that was attached to it. Mr. Gillet. So he was the first exercise physiologist, as we now call it, Dr. Thompson. That's right. He was way ahead of the rest of them on that. Mr. Gillet. Where did BJ get his information or education on training on nutrition? Just common sense? Dr. Thompson. 
just common sense. I can remember him so well telling people, do any t- anything you want within moderation. Now, BJ was quite a guy to go on a binge. Maybe he wouldn't eat anything for a whole week but chocolate sodas. And then he would switch to something else to prove his point. That's what he was trying to do, to prove a point. That innate, if no interference was there, could handle most anything. Mr. Jalay, Clay, tell me about BJ as a person. Dr. Thompson, well, BJ was like a father to me. He took me on many programs. In fact, I went with BJ one time to New York City to the Academy of Science, along with Bill Warner, who was one of the best-known chiropractors who ever lived. Bill Warner, BJ, and I were on the program. Warner gave a fiery talk on Logan basic technique. BJ, of course, kidded him about getting his thumb dirty. Then BJ got up and gave an emotional talk on upper cervical and the atlas. And when I got up to talk, I said, It seems to me that my friends are a little mixed up because there does seem to be a few bones between the atlas and the sacrum, which I don't mind working on once which I don't mind working on once in a while. When I got off the platform, BJ said, Clay, you shouldn't have said that. I said, well, chief, take it or leave it. It's true. You stuck to the upper cervical and Bill Warner stuck to the bottom. Before the clock struck 12 that night, I had adjusted BJ's ninth dorsal and Bill Warner's atlas, which means they knew that I knew both of them were full of it. If you were in BJ's home after 8 o'clock, even though he may have invited you over for the evening, he would just simply get up, say goodnight, and go to bed. And there we would just stand, with our faces hanging. It was BJ's habit to go to bed early, and then he would get up in the morning about 2 or 3 o'clock and go to work. He had this special typewriter belt, an enormous typewriter, and rolls of paper about 18 inches wide, where he could tap with one finger, tap, tap, tap. After he tapped out an idea, then he went back to bed. Pretty soon, he had all these ideas down, and that's how he wrote his books. Mr. Gillet. He was obviously a very creative man. Dr. Thompson. And then there was the BJ Clinic. He didn't care if it was the President of the United States. When BJ's interview was over, he stood up, and you knew this was the end of it. That's the way it was. Now, they tell a story. In fact, I heard BJ tell this story years ago. The senior Dr. William Mayo brought his wife to BJ Palmer, and BJ had an interview with him. BJ said, I want to take some x-rays of her upper cervical area first. Dr. Mayo responded, What do you want to do that for? BJ said, Look, Dr. Mayo, don't question what I do. 
If you don't want me to work on her, it's all right. You can take her back home. But as long as you are here in my clinic, you'll have to do what I ask to be done. That was understood. Well, BJ took the x-rays. BJ made the adjustments, and she recovered from whatever she had. I don't remember her case exact, but she got well. Now, it's time for BJ and Mayo to talk it over between themselves. BJ said, Dr. Mayo, you are a diagnostician. I recognize that you, as one of the greatest living men today, there's no question about it. You know a thousand things that might be wrong with your wife. You tried them all, and nothing worked. Now, I only knew, uh, now, I only know one thing, but it worked. Who's the smartest? Mr. Gillet, what year was that? Dr. Thompson, that was in the 1920s, back when I worked out the problem with the headpiece and the and Dr. Galen Price was the instructor in technique. The student clinic was the auditorium, with an aisle down the middle and seats, one for the patient, all in close proximity, and a rubber top stool that the doctor sat on. The rubber top stool was about one and a half inches thick. We tried recoils on that seat, and the higher we could make the stool jump, the better adjustment we had. Well, I was pretty sharp, I thought. So when it came time for me to have my first patient with God and everybody watching, I placed her on the table, got her all set, took my contact, and gave my thrust. She went this way, indicating left, and I went that way, indicating right. And I thought, oh my God, I said to Dr. Price that the headpiece did not give like the rubber top stool. No, Dr. Price said. You'll get used to it. But I never did, because my mechanical mind said, this is wrong. This knocks everything out. So I began to think how I could reduce that shock to the patient and the doctor. And then the headpiece was born. After I used it on a few patients, and I could see it was really going to work, Dr. William H. Quigley took it to the Clearview Sanitarium, where on, took it to the Clearview Sanitarium, where the patients were. They had all kinds of mental disorders, and we tried it on them, and nobody kicked. When Dr. Quigley told BJ what we were doing, BJ called me and said, Clay, I hear you've got a new bomb invented. I said, yes. He said, when can I see it? So we set a date. Ralph Evans and Herb Hender, who were the bigwigs in those days, and Otto Sternbeck, the head of neurochilometry, met with us at my office. I had a little clinic on Locust Street, and it's still there. I had adjusted BJ many times, and BJ always found something wrong. He would say, Clay, I don't think you're over quite far enough, which meant, Clay, you're great, but I'm number one. So BJ said, Clay, I want you to adjust me on this new headpiece. I said, fine. 
So I laid BJ down and gave him an adjustment. He lay perfectly quiet. He got off the table and said, Clay, this is the most wonderful thing that I've ever seen in my life. Can I have it? I said, no, you can't. He said, go to hell. Herb said, I told you he was going to ask you for the headpiece. These experiences are so real to me that it's just like they happened yesterday when I recall them. I was on the teaching faculty, of course. I taught hygiene, psychology, technique, and other subjects. One day, I was in the classroom, and I knew BJ's wa- BJ was at one of his low points at his winter home in Sarasota. He used to be almost manic-depressive. So I talked to the students, and I said, Our chief is low. He needs some encouragement. I said that the kindest thing in the world they could do now is to write him a little letter. So I put his address on the blackboard, and they all wrote to him. It's it's in the letter to me where he says, Old boy, you're guilty. If this happens, you're guilty. They wrote him letters, and he wrote every one of them back. Mr. Gillet. Isn't that great? Today, that's something for them to all have and keep. Dr. Thompson. Oh, man, that will be a collector's item. Mr. Gillet. Okay, doctor, what about the patents and the headpiece? Dr. Thompson. A.G. Bush, who was the attorney for Palmer School for many years, was also a patent attorney, and he, he cooperated with me. After I worked this headpiece out and got to Judge Bush, he wrote up the mechanical patents. There's a difference between process patents and mechanical patents in that if you change a screw or bolt on something, you're doing it a little differently and you can get around the mechanical patent. But when you have a process patent by which something is done, that settles it. Nobody can infringe on a process patent. Judge Bush said, You have something here that is patentable in the process. In the letters you have from BJ, you'll see where he said, I wouldn't have bet a million dollars it can't go through. When I talked to him about obtaining the patent, he said that it couldn't be done, then added, but give it a try. So, Judge Bush and I went to Washington, D.C., and appeared before the Patent Appeals Board. The Patent Appeals Board has 12 members, just like the Supreme Court. Same thing. It has a chairman, and the whole works. So, you present your idea to them, and they vote on whether or not the patent attorney in the patent office can be overruled. Well, we went over there and Judge Bush made a real Gladstone talk. Boy, did he give a talk. And then the chairman said, Doctor, will you come forward and describe your headpiece? Tell us all about it. Now, he had sent every one of them a brief about an inch or two thick. They all knew what we were doing. I had pre- and post-x-rays, neurocalligraph tests, pre- and post 
the adjustment and their symptoms before and after. There was a remarkable change in the readings and a remarkable change in their case histories. So, of course, this had to do with what we were doing. So I took the headpiece up in front of the board. I, I had made a smaller model for the presentation. I put it on the chair in front of this board and I locked it down. Of course, the drop headpiece comes down and locks, as you know. The ones today are either magnetic or they drop through space. But then, we had to use a spring to lock it at the bottom. In other words, it would come down and then we would latch it. Otherwise, it would just jump back up. So I had latched it and got all set for my thrust. And I said, now notice, gentlemen, that the thrust went through my shoulders. Over a period of time, that the injury, over a period of time, that injures the doctor as well as hurting the patient. And when I put the headpiece up, now I said, notice what happens. I went bing like that, indicating the motion. The chairman said, yes, we understand it. Then I said, now, gentlemen, if you had your car up against the wall and tried to go ahead, you couldn't get any place. But if you got back about three feet with the momentum you would have, you would go right through it. And the chairman said, Well, doctor, we know all about Newton's law. You don't have to go any further. I said to myself, Well, I'm cooked. I came back and told BJ. He said, That's bad, Clay. I was afraid of this. In less than three weeks, we had the patent approved. A completed process patent, which stated that the chiropractic adjustment belonged to the chiropractor and that it did arouse something in the body that was corrected by the patient, by the patent. Mr. Gillet, that's great. Dr. Thompson, greatest thing that ever happened. We could win all the kinds of legal suits because of it, and BJ and I worked our heads off. A sidelight on that? When I left the college in 61, BJ and I had a pact. If he died first, I would quit. In other words, if something happened, I had all the patents assigned to the college. But BJ had put a little statement at the bottom that read, In case of my demise, everything in the patents goes back to Clay Thompson. So when BJ died... Otto Sternbeck said, Well, how do you want your patents, Clay? In fact, Dr. Price and Kenny Cronk stopped me in the Palmer cafeteria and said, Clay, Dave wants to talk to you. I said, All right. This was 1961, following BJ's death. They said, Dave is afraid to talk to you but he wants you to stay on here because you've got such potential. You've been such a loyal member to the college, and you have helped out with the courses. He said, you've got a real future here. The only thing we want you to do is sign your patents over to us. I said, like hell I will. And they thought they had me. 
And when they went to the safe and got the patents out, which said everything went back to Clay Thompson, they knew they were cooked. The college continued to benefit from the patents from that day to this day. Thank you for joining me for another episode. I'm Dr. Arthur Plessa. This has been the Green Book Commentaries.